So we have been in a series for the last eight weeks um, in the book of James. We've just been preaching through the book of James and, and seeing what God has for us. And, and it's, been, it's been titled God's Design for Faith. That's what I, I looked at James and, and feel like that that was a, a direction that he wanted us to go. And then each week we've been talking about this blueprint plan and you can kind of see from the image up there that there's a blueprint plan underneath that title. And, and so everything has been based on a blueprint plan. And so today, because James is both very powerful, very blunt and honest, but also very practical at the same time. And so it's one of the things I love about the book of James. It's a challenging book to read and not, and not just feel some type of way. But um, as we get into James chapter 4 today... It's going to look a little bit different than usual. What we've been doing has been just reading through a chunk of scripture and, and breaking it down. And we're still going to do some of that because that's what, we're, that's what we do. Uh, but we're going to jump right into the deep end of this passage because James chapter 4, it starts to get pretty deep. And so today's message is a blueprint plan for drawing close to God and being in the will of God. And two very important things in our walk and in our lives. And so let's just jump right in. James chapter 4, verse number 1. The very, I'm only going to share the first half of verse number 1 for just a few minutes. Because it's just this is where we're going to kick off. There is a war going on within the body of Christ and within us. And James chapter 4, verse 1 says, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? There are so many arguments and fights and quarrels going on just in the body of Christ that that it's just it's becoming it's becoming even more pronounced as time goes even more divided based on preference based on desire based on will based on denomination based on all these things that's just in the church outside of the church we're becoming even more divided based on race and religion and what we believe and what we how we work and what we do for a living and all these types of things are dividing us in such a way that it's created what i believe to be a war not just within us as james references but also within the body of christ and in this world and so in your notes, there's a couple of fill-in-the-blanks, and we're going to jump right into them. I believe that I'm going to share with you three conflicts that I believe take place as we map out this first portion of James. And if you're here for the first time or you're newer, one of the things you'll understand about, about me and about us here at Relevant Faith Church, one of my passions, one of my greatest passions in life is the Word of God just to study it, to read it, to try to comprehend as much as I can possibly comprehend. And so I study it in its original context and language, and, and, and so that we will do a lot of that this morning. So bear with me, buckle up, and let's uh, jump right in. So the very first conflict I want to talk to you about is found in James chapter 4, verse number 1. And he says, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? The first conflict I want to talk to you about this morning is an internal conflict. There is an internal battle. And I want to understand this a little bit. When you look at this passage of scripture, the idea of quarrels and fights is pretty obvious. It's just uncomfortable battles that we face. And everybody faces different ones at different times and points of their lives. So we, but we all face some sort of battle in our lives that we battle with inside, not What's on the outside pressing against us, but what is inside of us that is causing this war? This phrase, the evil desires, is much deeper than what it sounds like. It actually, the King James Version uses the word lusts, but it's, it, comes from, it comes from a word that we actually get the English word hedonistic from. And so it actually insinuates a deep, deep passion and desire, and actually a sensuous type of pleasure is the evil desire phrase in there. That's what it actually gets down to. Its actual meaning is a sensuous type of ple pleasure, but never in a positive light. It always has a negative connotation to it. It's not one of these things that it sounds like, oh, that kind of pleasure, that sounds, that sounds good, but it's always in a negative light in Scripture when, it, when this word is referenced and like I said, it's the same word that we get the, the word hedonistic from, which means to be engaged in the pursuit of pleasure and sensually self-indulgent. And so that's the battle that is raging within us. 
the self-indulgent battle that says, I want what I want. I look at what I see with my eyes and I just decide I want that and I covet that and I say that's going to be mine and it creates this desire within me that only is meant to satisfy me. And that's what James is talking about when he talks about this idea of evil desires, that it's actually what ends up happening is this desire within us becomes an end in itself. Meaning if I accomplish this, then I've accomplished what I need to accomplish in life. And so this is the place that things worry and fear and insecurity begin to rile up because the, 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 what we're trying to accomplish inside, what the battle that's raging inside of us is creating all these external issues like insecurity. And insecurity leads us to believing, well, you know what, maybe I'm not good enough to do what I'm doing. And because I'm not good enough to do it, I'm just going to walk around always needing someone's affirmation. And this is a journey that you go on and, and always needing affirmation, always needing Someone to tell me that I'm valued. Somebody to tell me that I'm good enough. Someone to tell me I, I've got this under control. And then what happens is because that's fed us for so long, and then someone comes along and begins to speak those things. You are valued and you are this. And, and, no, and I'm not suggesting that even in a positive light. One of, the most, one of the most popular ways this takes place is in the context of a marriage and that's why I always like to use marriage is because the Bible uses marriage to, to talk and illustrate the relationship with Christ and Christ with the church. And what happens is in the context of a marriage, we don't feel like we're getting what we're supposed to be getting at home. And then an outside source comes in and begins to speak to us and begins to feed those evil desires that are within us, that insecurity or that emotion or whatever it is that we feel like we're lacking. And then we just latch on to that, that influence. And what that ends up doing is pulling us away from our spouse. Well, the same thing happens in the kingdom of God and happens in our relationship with Christ. Is we're not receiving everything that we want inside. The battle that's raging is not being fulfilled inside. So we start to look in other places. And as we look in other places and failing to keep Christ as a center of our lives, it starts to pull us away from Christ in the same kind of way. Our insecurities and our fears, they manifest themselves in depression and anxiety and mood swings and that causes such a conflict within us. And so an internal conflict James is talking about is that there's this evil desire, this lust at war within us. This is not relegated for those that are not believers. James is speaking to believers. So this isn't like we have to, we have to be very careful to not get on our high and mighty church horse to say, oh, well, I'm a Christian. There's no evil desire in me. Well, and let me just crush that for just a moment. If I can, I pastor this church and they're inside of me. And so it's every human being on earth that wrestles and battles with these types of war and these types of conflict. The second conflict I want to talk to you about this morning for a few minutes is relational conflict. There is a relational conflict that takes place. James chapter four, verse number two, you want what you don't have. So you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. You fight and wage war to take it away from them. Wow. What, one, one of the amazing tricks of the devil is that he allows you to see things that you would like to have and then ultimately begin to believe that wow, I really want that. And our, our really wanting that turns into a, I really deserve that. You know, I've worked hard. I've paid my dues. You know, I, I, I remember a time in my life when, and, um, when I was young in ministry and young as, a, young as a pastor, I was an associate youth pastor in a church in Baltimore. And it was a, it was a large church. And, and I, was, I was heavily involved in this ministry. And I've been pouring out my heart and soul for five years, working like 30 plus hours a week, never taking a dime for a salary and, and just loving what I did. And then the youth pastor leaves and I'm thinking, man, this is my time. This is my opportunity. God is going to, God is going to, Give me this, this desire that I have within me to, to be the youth pastor in my home church. And I've been serving this pastor for years and serving this pastor for years. And it's like, I, this is my time. 
And I remember wanting to have an interview and, and they, they didn't want to interview me. And I, I was confused and what is going on? This is, this is my opportunity. And so finally they interviewed me and it was one of those, anybody ever been on a mercy interview? Like, uh, let's, 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 uh, let's just humor him kind of thing. Well, it's, that's not something you can hide when it's happening. And so I kind of knew that was going on. And so I was like, man. And so ultimately I didn't get hired. Here we are a church of, I don't know, about 1500 at the time with a youth ministry of three or 400. And it was, it was, a, um, it was an urban outreach ministry. So we're, I w being white in the ministry, I was actually the minority. And I was like, man, I'm upset. And then to find out they hired this young man who was a pastor, uh, uh, previously a youth pastor. And, and, and let me tell you, I'm about to get very fleshly, so you know just how real that I am. He was a youth pastor in a town of like 500, whose largest thing he ever did was like 25 kids. And I'm thinking, what does this white boy from the country have any clue how to pastor urban kids? And I'm thinking, man, this is ridiculous. So then my pastor calls me and says, hey, Mike, I need a favor. He says, I want to fly you down to Florida. And I want you to go and help this new youth pastor pack up his, help him finish packing up his U-Haul truck and drive his U-Haul truck back to Baltimore. <laughs> yeah, look at that. See, you're already laughing and smiling because you know you can get a sense of where this story is going. And I said, I said to my pastor, you lost your mind. I'm not doing that. That's what I told him in private and closed doors. And he mentored me. We'll use that phrase. And uh, long story short, I got on an airplane and uh, I forced my, 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 my spiritual mentor at the time, my, my, uh, the guy who was helping walk with me through life and in ministry, I forced him to go. I told my pastor, I'm only going if my man Lewis goes with me. He was mad at me because they made him go. But it created this relational conflict within me based on what I felt I deserved, based on what I felt was I was entitled to, that I deserve this so much because of my work. Anybody ever been there before? Anybody ever been to a place where they feel like they've deserved something because of the effort and the work that they've put in, only to not receive it? Maybe I'm only, one of the only ones. Maybe my friend that just raised his hands. The only one, we are the only ones in life. And if that's the case, then we'll preach to each other here. But the reality is, relational conflict takes place. And here's the, here's the messed up part of all this and seeing God move and all this is that man that would be hired would ultimately become one of the greatest influences in my life that would propel me to go in the direction that I am going now. And today is the God, godparent to my children and became my closest friend. Even to the point now that we've been separated for about 10 years we still talk on a regular basis. We still follow each other's lives. And, and when we do pick, start talking, it's almost like we never, left, we pick up right where we left off. He, he's, he's, my, he's the reason why I'm addicted to Starbucks. And I'm not really addicted anymore, but just coffee in general. But it's that, there was such conflict relationally because I felt I deserved something. And if you look at the second half of verse number two there, it's a very popular passage of scripture and another one so commonly twisted because it insinuates that all you have to do is ask God for something and it's yours. You know, it says, you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. You know, there's this theology or this doctrine or whatever you want to call it that says name it and claim it. Let me let me say, and I, I, even heard, I even heard a worship song. I have a, on my Spotify this Discover Weekly. And so it takes the history of everything I listen to and then throws up some songs that I might be interested in, which is kind of interesting because I listen to a whole lot of different stuff. And so I'm listening to this song. And even over the, in this song and worship, he declares, somebody in this room wants a new house, so you just need to ask God and he's going to give you a new house. And I was like, eh, next song. Because that's just not biblical. And it's, it, it derives from this place of you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And I, I've been there. I've asked God for a whole lot of things that I never received. 
And so that, that, that name it and claim it kind of thing, it creates even more relational conflict and ultimately creates a relational conflict between me and God because I'm not getting what he think, what I think I deserve. And so the third conflict where we're going to finish out that verse, second, that second half of verse two, so we can deal with that doctrinal issue there is the third conflict I want to talk to you about. And this is, I'm going to spend a few more minutes on this one is a spiritual conflict. So you have an internal conflict, you have a relational conflict, and you have a spiritual conflict. Welcome to walking with Christ as a journey because this is your life daily. Internal, relational, spiritual, at battle every day. And so James chapter 4, the second half of verse number 2, when I said, yet you don't have what you ask for because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. That word pleasure is the same word in the original language that meant the evil desire lust. It's the same word. And so we don't have what we, what we desire because we don't ask God for it. But even when we do ask God for it, our motives are all wrong. Back to when I asked God to make me the youth pastor in that ministry, my motives were because I deserved it, because I worked hard for it. And what I came to realize today is I deserve, there's one thing I deserve according to scripture. Here's what I deserve. Death. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And I am a sinful person. So because I'm a sinful person, the only thing I actually deserve is death. Now God in his grace gives me life and God in his grace blesses and God in his grace gives me favor. But the only thing I actually am entitled to according to scripture is death because of my sin. The grace of God sent Christ so that I didn't have to die because of my sin. So that, that, that doctrinal issue is oftentimes happens because someone only takes the first half of a scripture and ignores the second half. Even when you ask God, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You know, there's, our motives creates this spiritual conflict. And so here's what we're going to do with this portion of scripture. We're going to unpack this a little bit deeper because there's way too much in it to not do it. And so... You don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. What that simply means is you have not possessed all that God has planned for you because you've not intently sought him out for what you desire. And we're not talking about the materialistic things because, again, motives are always a part of seeking God for what you desire. What are your motives in seeking God for what you desire? How many churches, how many churches are seeking God for what they desire because they desire more money or they desire more people or they desire more buildings or desire these things? This, even the church, this has worked its way even into the body of Christ in such a way that we desire so, so many things and our motives are just a little out of balance. And, and then when we don't receive it, we think that we're doing something wrong. You know, I went down that journey with a church. I, my whole life and my whole history of ministry is just large church. And God's taken me on a four-year journey to say, hey, whatever you give me, whatever you bless me to be shepherding is so wonderful. And I'm so gracious that even one person would show up to hear me preach. It used to be that I would look out and see people and say, man, this is just, this isn't what it should be. But that's a journey even God has taken me on. And so the understand, what we have to understand in this passage of scripture is that in order to receive the desires of our heart, the desires of our heart have to be connected to Christ in such a way that they are his desires for us. That's the only way to receive the desires of our hearts. And let's look at the rest of that. He goes into in verse number four. He says, you adulterers. Man, James is harsh. Uh, he is a harsh man. He's calling out people. He's calling people out. He says, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. So here's what's happened with this passage of scripture. This passage of scripture has caused a lot of Christians to say, well, you're not a believer, so I don't like you. I'm not going to talk to you. 
I'm not going to fellowship with you. You're beneath me. They become all this, this self-righteousness that rises up because after all, the Bible says to be a friend of the world means I'm God's enemy. Well, I don't want to be God's enemy, so I'm not going to be a friend with anybody in the world. I'm not going to be a friend to this person because they don't believe. I'm not going to be a friend to that person because they're Muslim. I'm not going to be a friend to that person because they're gay. I'm not going to be a friend to that person because they're black. I'm not going to be a friend to that person because they're white. I'm not going to be a friend to anyone, anyone that I consider to be the world because I don't want to be an enemy of God. And that's what's caused so much turmoil in the church, in our world. It's the people just can't figure out one very simple thing, which I'm going to get to later, so I don't want to give it away. But this idea, this one thing that we're going to get to, this one thing they haven't figured out is how to love and be in the world, but not be of the world. There's a difference between the two. As a matter of fact, they take this passage of scripture and they actually twist it to believe something that doesn't actually exist. Because friendship with the world means it makes you an enemy of God. The word friendship means it's a trusted confidant. That's what the word friendship means. It doesn't mean I shook your hand and said good morning. It doesn't mean that we sat down at a local Starbucks and had a cup of coffee. It means my, a trusted confidant. That means I am placing my trust in this world. Let me tell you something. We do that daily. If you, if you don't believe me, just get onto any news site in the world and see the, the day after our president was elected. The chaos that took place just because someone was elected into office. And I've had people say, well, doesn't that just infuriate you and bother you? And I say, no, not really. And the first assumption is, because you must have voted for him then. I don't like you. People left our church because they assumed I voted for this man. Never asked the question. They just assumed I did because I tell people to pray for him and to honor him. Why? Because it's biblical. And I say, and they're like, well, da, da, da. I was like, listen, my world is not this world. I don't trust this economy for my provision. I trust the one who developed the economy. I don't trust my president to lead me. I trust my Christ to lead me. I trust myself to be led by the Holy Spirit, not Donald Trump, Barack Obama, Reagan, or any other president ever live. That's the issue that we have. We put trust in this world, and that's what James is talking about. When you put trust in this world like that, when you, put, when you make this world your confidant, when you make your employer your trust for providing for your, parent, your family's needs, now you're placing your trust in the world. Now you have become an enemy of God. And the word enemy of God, that phrase means that I stand in hostile opposition. Please don't stand in hostile opposition to the creator of everything. That is a battle you shall lose. There's no doubt about it. That is, a, that is a fight you can't win. I mean, it's very clear. Flip to the back of the book in the book of Revelation when it talks about who the greatest opposition to God is, the devil. What happens to him? He loses. Anyone who stands in opposition to God will lose. And that's what it means to be an enemy of God, to stand in hostile opposition to God. Why? Because I've placed my trust in the things of this world. I placed it in education. I placed it in relationships, in job, in money. People think, well, I'm broke. Therefore, I have no, I have, I have to do everything. I got to hustle, 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 hustle to make ends meet. Let me tell you something. All your hustle, you're still going to be short. That's life. And the difference is what does God have that he funnels to you because he can then get it through you, guess what he's always going to be doing? He's always going to be funneling it to you because he knows he can get it through you. It's the, it's the people who struggle the most financially who don't give to the kingdom of God in any capacity, whether it's in church or to a homeless person on the street or to a friend in need or however you want to base your giving. We struggle because we don't have enough, so we hold on to everything saying, oh my, and this, is all, this all sounds physical, but this is all spiritual. This battle is a spiritual battle taking place. And so knowing and understanding these conflicts that we face is what arms us in life. To know you're going to fight an internal battle, to know you're going to fight a, a, a spiritual battle, and to know you're going to fight a relational battle gives you power. It arms you in life. But see, it's not just enough to be armed in life. You have to be willing to fight. You have to be willing to fight in life. And, and we use weapons that are not of this world. See, we like to fight with weapons of this world, but they don't accomplish spiritual things. They only accomplish worldly things. 
And at the end of the day, the worldly things will pass away. And so we have to be willing to fight this battle and understand that, that the greatest understanding that you have to have in your mind when you're fighting this battle is that it's not you fighting the battle, but it's God that's fighting the battle for you. And you have, to be, you have to place your trust in that. Isaiah 59, verse number 19, the Bible says, and I'm going to read the King James Version, so shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. What does that mean? I, had, I liked the way it said it, but I had to understand what on earth is a standard. Because I'm thinking you're going to lift up a standard. What's a standard? It literally means that God will drive it away and place you in a safe place. Not get rid of the battle around you, but place you in a safe place in the midst of the battle. And he drives away those things. It's like he, like he did with the, the, the devil in Job. He said, "You go ahead, tempt him. Do whatever you want, but you can't kill him. Job's safe place was not being dead. You read the book of Job and you think he probably rather would be die, dead. But the reality is God had placed him in a safe place. He had lifted a standard up against the enemy. And when I see scriptures like Isaiah 59 and in Deuteronomy chapter 20 where he fights and not just fights but gives us victory. And in Joshua chapter 1 that he is with me wherever I go. And in Psalm 44 that he pushes back the enemy and tramples on those that defy us. When I read passages of scripture like that in Isaiah 54 verse 17 when he says, But in that coming day no weapon turned against you will succeed. You will silence every voice raised to accuse you. These benefits are enjoyed by the servants of the Lord. Their vindication will come from me. I, the Lord, have spoken. Man, these benefits. But look what it says. Don't, you got, you got to be careful in reading the scripture and getting excited because it says these benefits are for those enjoyed by the servants of the Lord. They're not enjoyed by the worldly people. They're not enjoyed by anyone else. So everybody else stands up and shouts, no weapon formed against me will prosper. You forgot the rest again. Because the only people that the weapon is not going to prosper against is those that are servants of the Lord. Those that are serving Christ. Those that are raging this battle and following through with serving Christ. He goes on to say, I, I love it. I, the Lord, have spoken. Meaning it is done, it is finished, stop the worry, stop the stress, I'm fighting this battle, and no weapon formed against you will prosper. Of course, you know, he did not say that it would not be formed against you. Every day of your life, there's going to be a weapon that forms against you, but you stand and know it will not prosper. But let me tell you something about, I'm going to give you, this is, I'm going to clarify this for a moment because this is my personal opinion. And in my opinion, one of the greatest weapons we have to push back the enemy is found in a simple word. It's found in the word purpose. That's, again, my, pref my preferential opinion is that the, one of the greatest weapons that we have to push back the enemy is purpose. Knowing and understanding the will of God for your life makes you an empowered person. Because that means when anything ever comes against you, you know and you understand the will of God for your life so you can stand firm in what you know you can stand through the conflict you can stand through the battle knowing and understand that will drive you to some places to do some things that you've never ever imagined you could possibly do you will reach out and take steps of faith you never even imagined were possible taking out and quitting a job and walking into another one because it's what God is leading you to do. Planting churches, starting ministries, becoming missionaries, whatever it is. There are so many things that are at work in the kingdom of God and that are in you that you don't even know that are possible. And it's all found in one word, the word purpose. Matter of fact, some, there was an old African proverb that was then requoted by Mark Twain when he said, The two greatest days of my life are not the day that I was born and the day that I die. It's the day that I was born and the day I learned why I was born. The two most powerful and greatest days of our lives. When you have purpose, you'll walk through fire. You'll run through brick walls. You will stand. You will overcome some of the most insane circumstances of life just to walk in the will of God. I watched a video and I the name of the gentleman escapes me right now, but I watched a video of the story of this man born with no legs and no arms. And at 13 years old, attempted to commit suicide. 
because he was ridiculed and he was bullied and he was just constantly tormented. And one day he heard someone talk about purpose, talk about the will of God, and it changed his life. And today that man goes everywhere. And what did he decide to do? He says, I'm going to learn to swim. No arms, no legs. Let me learn to swim. Let me tell you something. When you have purpose, you'll do things that were previously meant and thought to be impossible. And so when you're raging this battle, the point of today's message is to talk about drawing close to God and walking in the will of God. And so the blueprint plan that I'm going to give you today is really simple. It's, it's five things that the Bible tells us are absolutely the will of God. James chapter 4, verse 13 through 17 says, Look here, you who say today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. Verse 14, how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while and then it's gone. What you ought to say is if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans and all such boasting is evil. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Let me say that again. It is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. See, we connect sin to all these big things when just simply not doing what God's told us to do is sin in itself. So here are five things the Bible says that I believe are absolutely the will of God. And they're, they're, very, they're, gonna get simp- they're gonna start out very simple. Then they're gonna get a little challenging. The very first one is, it is the will of God to be saved. Matthew chapter 18, verse number 14, in the same way it is not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. John chapter three, verse 16, for God so loved the world that, wow, lost, I lost it. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish. The reason why Christ has not come back is because it's God's desire that none should perish. What does that word perish mean? It means to die outside of the relationship with Christ. It doesn't just mean to die because we all will die. But it's to die outside of a relationship with Christ. That's why, that's why you're drawn to him. That's why I was drawn to Christ because it was not his will for me to die outside of a relationship with Christ. Although many have and many will. But it is his desire for us to be saved. There's no way to know God's will until you actually know God. Let's stop trying to figure out what God wants to do and and know his will for my life when we don't actually know him. Get to know him, you'll get to know his will. That's how that works. And it's really easy. Salvation is actually really easy. It's confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart. That's it. Anything else anybody makes it is not biblical. There's There's a whole denomination of faith that will tell you if you don't pray in tongues, you're not saved. Eh, wrong, not biblical. There's a whole other denomination that says if you are not baptized, then you're not saved. That's not actually biblical either. It is a command of Christ to be baptized, but it's got nothing to do with your salvation. It's an outward expression of already an inward reality, according to Scripture, of what baptism actually is. But there we put so much more onto salvation than what needs to be there. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that you shall be saved and you will be saved. Number two, is absolutely the will of God, is to be spirit-filled. Ephesians, now this isn't crazy, charismatic, Pentecostal, spirit-filled that we're talking about. Although, I'm crazy, Pentecostal, spirit-filled. No, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17 and 18 says, don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It takes it past the salvation experience to a daily dependence on God. That's, the, that's the, the first and most important reason and operation of the Holy Spirit is to create a daily dependence on God. It convicts, it comforts, it leads into all truth. This is the Holy Spirit's main job. It's not so you can shout in tongues. It's not so you can prophesy to the walls. It's so that you have a daily dependence on God. Nothing wrong with prophecy. I have experienced so many words of prophecy in my life, and some of them have been, wow, right on. Some of them have been, wow, not close. 
And that's, that's, the, that's the nature of the ministry. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a biblical portion of ministry as well. But it takes this, what Ephesians, what Paul is talking about to the church of Ephesus, he's saying, you guys, he's, he's saying it for a reason. He don't just arbitrarily say, hey, stop, don't get drunk with wine. It's because they're getting drunk. He's like, y'all, you, you're missing something here. Don't get drunk with wine because that's going to end your life, but be filled with the Spirit. The third thing that is absolutely the will of God is to be sanctified. So we got to be saved. We've got to be spirit-filled. We've got to be sanctified. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. The Bible says, God's will is for you to be holy. So stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion. There's that phrase, same exact word used by James. The same word we get our hedonistic word from in the English language. Not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God in his ways. We are called to be holy. We are called to be set apart. Every new level of growth requires a new level of sacrifice. Every new level of growth requires a new level of sacrifice. See here, my problem when I was new in my faith and, and actually my first probably five years of being in my faith was I would look at everyone out there, every single person, and suggest that they all should look like me. They should all worship like I worship. They should pray like I pray. They should read like I read. They, and if they don't, then they're not saved. Man, that's what I used to believe. Man, I was a messed up person. I had this, 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 this legalistic mindset that said, if you don't do this, 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 I relegated salvation, three, four, five things. It said, you're not saved if you don't do these things. But what I've come to realize is that everybody's journey is just that. It's a journey. And actually, the word sanctification literally references a process. And a process, only thing that is necessary for it to be a process is that it's progressing forward. It can be big steps. It can be baby steps. As long as we are progressing forward, progressing towards holiness, then you're fulfilling his desire. But here's the thing. We want this level of ministry, this level of influence, this level of faith with this level of living for Christ. I want all these things, but I don't really want to have to sacrifice my, my Friday night binge drinking beer poker game. I don't want the game of poker. I got to get drunk doing it. That we don't want to sacrifice those parts. It's like, uh. And all that just means is you're not ready to grow to the level that God wants you yet. But you will be. Because while I was all legalistic in my thought process, guess what else I did? I cussed and smoked, cussed like a sailor and smoked a pack a day. See, I would look at everybody else. I'd ignore those few little indiscretions of my own and look at everybody else and say, they're what's wrong, never myself. But in order, and in my life, every single place I've ever gone in ministry, in leadership, in anything, in any kind of influence, it's always required a greater level of sacrifice. And that's what being sanctified is. See, I told you, it's going to start out easy. Getting saved is easy. Spirit fills all God. You ain't got to do nothing for it. Sanctification, nah, now we're talking, stepping on some toes. It's starting to hurt a little bit. This last one, this, not, this the fourth one's not going to feel too great either. Just, just preparing you. You've got to be submitted. I could hear the groans, even spiritual groans. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39 he went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. The words of Christ before suffering on the cross. He knew what he was going to endure. He knew what was coming. And he said, God, if there's any way, Father... Man, if there's any way, please let this cup pass for me. I'd, I'd rather, really rather not endure this suffering. But his heart was connected to a place of submission where he said, but not my will, yours be done. In order to, to grow into the will of God, you have to sacrifice your own will, your own 
preference, your own desires. Why I pray what I pray before I preach. I pray that prayer every single Sunday before I preach. That I would decrease so that you might increase. That our, our passions, our preferences, our desires, our will would decrease. Because it's the only way for God to increase. Because if we stay connected to our will and our desire, he can't possibly increase. Because it's then about us. We have to understand and we have to get this process in our mind that God is for you. He is not against you. He's not lifting up a standard against you. It's against the enemy. He is for you. He wants what's best for you. It's the same thing that when we as parents discipline our children and teach our children is because we want what's best for them. They don't understand that. They just think, my dad is mean. Anybody else got kids at home to say dad has said dad's mean? Yeah, I have that. I have three of them. And on some level, they all think I'm mean because I don't let them do whatever it is they want to do. Too much of that already in this world has made society the way that it is. But they get frustrated. You don't like, I don't like what you're doing and you're mean and that's okay. I'm fine with being mean. Because here's what I also know. I have the blessed opportunity to know how often my parents were right. Wow, I was that kid. I would look at my parents and say, you're foolish. You don't know what you're talking about. You're old. Times have changed. You don't know what's going on anymore. Oh my goodness. You know how many times now I tell my parents, mom, I'm so sorry. You are so right. And she wasn't even, she didn't even serve Christ in those days. My mom didn't even get saved until this church got planted. So she was right even without Christ. But that's, we, we don't want to be submitted. But you have to submit and trust him to operate in his will for your life. Last one is this. And I told you they're progressively going to get more and more difficult. This might be the hardest of them all for many people. So we have to be saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, submitted, and serving. When I think of the word serving and I think of the, what that looks like, I think of Galatians chapter 5. John, you can come and get set as I wrap this message up this morning. I see, think of Galatians chapter 5, verse number 13. He says, for you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. See, there they are again. Same phrase, same wording. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Let me tell you something. It is God's will to be saved. It is God's will to be spirit-filled. It is God's will to be sanctified. It is God's will to be submitted. It is God's will to serve. The believer who does not serve outside of the will of God. Bottom line. And no, that does not mean that the believer who doesn't play on a worship team or stand at the door and greet, it's not about the church. The body of Christ in the church needs its servants as well. But I'm talking serving one another in love. That doesn't take place within the four walls of your church. Just so you know, it doesn't. What takes place in the four walls of your church is encouragement, empowerment, fellowship, grace. Those types of things, they also take place inside, outside of the four walls of the church is where serving is rubber meets the road. What do you do for someone else? What do you make happen for someone else? What do you do with what God's given you to bless someone else? It's not about you and your bank account. It's not about you and your house, you and your cars. It's about what do you do to bless someone else outside of the walls of this building? Because if you haven't figured it out, you're in a movie theater, not a church. Part of the reason why I love it in a movie theater is because you can't say, oh, that's my church when you drive by. Because people think you're nuts. Like, no, that's a movie theater. No, no, it's a church on Sunday, I promise. It's a movie theater. So what does that do that makes you have to be the church? Because that's what serving is. It means, the word serving means to be, listen, this is going to, this is, I, I was studying this word, and I use online tools to study some of these Greek, these Greek words, and I clicked on that word and said, 
read it and said, oh, wait a minute, that's the wrong word. Let me go back through my study, find a, I have, a, I have another, I have another book that I actually like to use that talks about the tenses of, of, of Greek, the Greek language. And so I look at it and say, oh, that is the right word. So I go back online and say, click, that's the right word. Oh my gosh, are you serious? This is what the word serving means in Galatians chapter 5. It means to be subjected and devoted to one another. It is the same phraseology used in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament when it talks about being a slave to Christ. No, serving is not a checklist box that you stood at the door and made people feel welcome when they walked in. Serving is what I do for someone else in love. And if you've not made the dedication to serve one another in this kind of capacity, then you will struggle to know God's will completely for your life. There will be an emptiness in you. Jesus modeled this by serving and washing the feet of his disciples. They would come and he would wash their dirty, stinky, nasty feet. Come on, they walked everywhere they went in a leather strap sandal of some type. In the desert, it is hot, dirty, sweaty, nasty. Jesus said, let me wash your feet. That's nasty. But he subjected himself to serving in that capacity. And to take it a step further, he said, I'm going to wash the feet of every one of you sitting here, knowing you will all scatter. Knowing that you, Peter, you will deny me. You will stand and you will say, I never knew Jesus. That every one of you would scatter, yet I'm still going to wash your feet. Our mentality is we serve those who serve a purpose for us. That's not serving. That is the evil desires that James talks about. Because the rest of that passage, again, this is what we do. Let me flip back to this. Wasn't, I wasn't going to initially share this, but now I, I feel like the Lord wants me to. So, so he says to, you've been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful, na sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Verse 14 and 15. 14. That's all I need. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who's your neighbor? No, it's not the person that lives next door to you. No, it's not the person sitting next to you in church, although they count. You're, according to Hebrews, every person in all of humanity is my neighbor. Regardless of race, regardless of religion, regardless of preference, they are my neighbor. So who am I called to love and serve? Everyone. What I find interesting in that passage, it's a little side note, is that we're called to live in freedom. But freedom doesn't mean we get to do what we want. But we serve one another because we are free. I serve my neighbor. How do I serve my neighbor? In love. And it's only then, the Bible says, that the gospel can be summed up with one word to love my neighbor as I love myself. Called to live in freedom. Called to serve. The whole gospel is summed up in loving our neighbor as ourselves. And some people would say, oh, well, I don't really love myself. That's actually not true. We are humans. We are absolutely in love with ourselves. Every one of us. 
I mean, otherwise, why would we be selfish? Why would we not give everything we have to help someone else? Instead, we'll look at wealthy pastors, wealthy business leaders, wealthy believers, and say, well, they shouldn't buy that car. They should sell that car and give the money to the poor. And my only question would be, what have you sold and given to the poor? It's our selfishness that looks at what others have. Says, I want that, or it's not fair that they have that. They should sell that. They're not a real Christian because they don't have, they haven't sold it. You know, the, the church in Acts, you know what they did? You know, people have such a, we, we, we are a church that practice the tithe, a tenth. I believe it was established before law, therefore carried into, but that's a whole other theological conversation, so we won't get into that now. But that's what I practice and what I believe. I practice it personally, believe it for our church. And people have such an issue with it. And so I don't argue with it. I don't fight it. You want to have a theological conversation? I'm cool with that, but I don't fight it. I just say, okay, that's fine. Then, then, then you should just be the Acts church. What'd they do? They sold everything they had and laid it at the feet of the apostles so that no one would be in need. That's serving one another in love. The will of God is to be saved Spirit-filled, sanctified, submitted, and serving. You want to know what the will of God is for your life? Be saved, be Spirit-filled, be sanctified, be submitted, and serve. I'm going to close with the passage of Scripture in James, verse number, chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. And if you're thinking, wait a minute, I skipped a whole section of James, it's okay because that's next week's message. There's a whole section of James that's found in verse 4 that I wanted to preach separately. So that's what I'm doing. James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. People have taken that passage of scripture to mean that I have to walk around in sadness and I have to walk around in gloom in order to be humble. No, he's saying don't walk around in pride. Understand where you come from there's somewhere else that God is taking you far greater than that place that you came from.